Hey everyone, you're listening to The Vent Podcast, your source for market insights, wine industry news, and updates on our current collections. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Vent Podcast. My name is Brady, and today we have a special guest filling in for Billy. It is our wine director, Adam LaPierre. Adam, we're glad to have you in the studio. Hey Brady, good to be with you as always. Yeah, it's you know I think this is the first time that we've had a a guest co-host, but maybe we make it a regular thing. Consider this your audition. <laughs> okay, I'll do my best. Yeah, we were planning today to talk through some of our collection details, both collections that we have available right now, collections that are currently selling out, as well as collections we have upcoming. We're recording today on Friday. August 12th. So by the time y'all hear this episode, it will be Tuesday. Yeah, Adam, maybe we can dive in a little bit. We can talk about the collections that we have available right now and what we're seeing sell out. We actually are anticipating the sellout of our current DRC collection, which should be sold out by Tuesday of next week. But maybe you can discuss some of the upcoming offerings we have and and just what's available in the pipeline. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I know we've touched on this a few a at a few different points in previous podcasts, but one of the things that we've made an effort to do just to give people more a greater access to the collections is to size some of these collections up. Obviously, with certain with certain wines, that's easier than others. So the Bordeaux collection is one example of that, where we we released that early July. And the expectation was this was going to be live for a number of weeks. And we are so, I mean, we, we like Bordeaux as a, and the, the thesis, the investment thesis for Bordeaux as sort of a cornerstone category to focus on. And I think this was something that'll feed into the discussion as we go. But the idea is having that, some of these cornerstone offerings available all the time on the, on the platform. So that being said, we are nearing the end of of the Bordeaux Superstars collection as of the time of this recording, 95% sold out. So I'm pretty confident that will be wrapping up pretty quickly. We've got something else very exciting in the pipeline to follow on that front to be announced very soon. The Middleton Silent Distillery collection is another one that we launched last week. One of our largest whiskey collections to date that we've offered, and that is getting close to 80% sold out moving nicely. And then the Penfolds Grange collection, which we launched a couple of weeks ago, is 85% sold out. So as we're nearing the end of some of these collections, we've got a number of pretty interesting follow-ups here in the pipeline. As of the time of, well, Tuesday, when we release this recording, we'll have be releasing the Raveno, Domain Raveno collection, which is one of the most iconic white burgundy producers and the leading, I would say the leading producer in Chablis from the standpoint of cachet and visibility. So I think that's going to be a really exciting one. And then to follow up later this week, we're going to have another Burgundy producer, producer of Red Burgundy that we will offer on Friday. And this will be a new producer to the platform, but really kind of following the trend of really bringing the top names and the top wines to, to the Vin audience and the, and the Vin community. How important do you think that adding in white wines to the kind of mix on the Vint platform 
How important is that for you when you think about building a diversified portfolio among, you know, other red wines from maybe the same region, like Burgundy, for instance, with Chablis? Yeah. So I think one of the things that's interesting about some of these categories that are just ultra hot is trying to find relative value in these, in these categories, white wines have a bit of a different dynamic in general because they're consumed earlier. So you, we tend to see maybe a faster movement in price at an earlier phase than you would with red Burgundy or Bordeaux as an example, because the wines are just getting consumed earlier and is pulled forward, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And we'll see this in other categories too. Like Tuscan reds is another one where most of the price action, a lot of the efficiency tends to happen pretty, pretty early after the wines are physically available. So I think from the standpoint of like investment horizon and possible exits, we may be on the earlier side of our typical window for white burgundy than we would be for red burgundy. But then also I think Chablis in, in reference to what's happening with burgundy as a whole is a, a source and a place of relative value. So I think it, it provides a nice balance to some of the other ultra rare cult producers that we're focused on. Yeah, I think, I mean, we've had a number of different comments from users, potential investors, when we've had white wine collections on the platform in the past, like, oh, I didn't even know that white wine was investable. I didn't know that you could age white wine, these kinds of questions. So I think it probably, there's a lot of education to do just in the market generally that these wines are one investable, but two that they present, like you said, an interesting value proposition. You know, when you think about the pulled forward demand and you think about, I guess, probably price to score ratios relative to the red wines in the region, I'd assume. So yeah, I'm excited to have another white wine collection because there are several kind of cohorts or I'm sure we have several hundred or even thousand investors who've come to the platform since our last white wine collection that, you know, have an opportunity to add to that offering. So, yeah. Yeah. And and then looking forward, some other, we've got some really exciting whiskey offerings that are going to be coming live. We've had a tremendous response to those offers previously. So really just looking to meet that demand by putting more collections in the pipeline and, you know, whiskey is just ultra hot as well. So that's another big area of focus in the next number of weeks as we as we roll out some additional collections. But yeah, I think in general, the strategy is to continue to sprinkle in some of these, some of these more unique or interesting collections to complement the main focus, which is you know, which are these core regions. And again, I think this will feed into the discussion we're having, but we're always looking at have this rotation of different collections sized appropriately, of course, and and consisting of the best possible assets within those regions or categories. But the idea is to really bring in a diverse range with different features and different attributes that ultimately can assist our clients and our community in building a, a diverse portfolio. Yeah, and our current selection on our collections page is you know, maybe the best representation of the diversification that you can get right now, right? We have a Bordeaux Magnum collection. We have that whiskey, the Middleton whiskey collection, the Penfolds collection, which kind of represent, you know, Bordeaux as kind of this cornerstone, the whiskey, obviously as a separate kind of 
also core to a portfolio, but separate from, you know, the wine asset class. And then Penfolds, which, you know, Australia, a more of maybe emerging region, not one where there are a ton of producers on the investment radar, but Penfolds has to be one of the top 10, if not top five most recognizable names in wine. The, you know, the, the volume of wine that they produce at the consumer level and then the quality that they produ- produce at this top level with their grange. Yeah, it's really impressive. And I think that, you know, a new user coming to the platform right now has a lot of opportunities to have instant diversification by investing in all three of those offerings. So I think it's a good strategy to always have, you know, one of those cornerstones on the platform. But it's nice that we're also, like you said, mixing in some more unique off the beaten path offerings or or rarities like with these whiskeys. Yeah, I think that you, you encapsulated it very well in that these different regions have unique characteristics as a category or yeah, as it relates to consumer awareness and visibility. But Grange is a great example where Australia as a category has a much different sort of level of global awareness and demand relative to Bordeaux. However, we are always working to select the best assets and and really present the best assets. So Grange being the most iconic and bluest of the blue chips in in the context of this kind of emerging region as you as we might describe it. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess with that kind of you know labeling these offerings, would it make sense to dive into some of the work that we've been doing around analyzing some market data, some trading data and helping investors understand their allocation, understand their portfolios better. I want to get into that conversation. We have had a couple like one-off conversations on the podcast about how investors might try and think about their portfolios and the collections that Vint releases in the context of their other assets that they hold, whether it be stocks or bonds or fine art or other things. But it can be overwhelming, I know, for investors who watch us releasing collections every five to 10 days, you know, which ones do I pass on? You know, they might be great, but which do I pass on? Which do I put more or less funds into? We've really been trying to build out some education recently and be thoughtful about how we share market data with investors to help them make more informed decisions. Maybe we can talk about some of these categories that we've been working with and and some of the data that we've found interesting as we've explored that together. Yeah, yeah, I think it is an an interesting topic of exploration because to many people it's just wine, right? And we have these different regions and those are things that we can talk about, but we really endeavor to give people a deeper understanding of or just a different perspective of how to think about those collections and as folks continue to invest in the platform, being able to be strategic to your point is, is important. And so I think we've, we've, we've spent a lot of time over the last number of weeks thinking about how do we ultimately categorize these collections, think about these collections internally, and then present different data points and that will help the investors make more informed decisions. So you know, one example of this is 
undertaking a process of sort of just looking at the regions as a whole and categorizing these regions based on different different attributes and different you know sort of a different realities in the marketplace one of the things that we think about with fine wine is the sort of the global demand and and the global trading volume as a as an important point when it comes to exiting collections and, and just sort of general liquidity in the market. And so we've, we've identified a few different buckets for these different regions, Brady. And, and, and this is, I think the first criteria that we're using is just looking at the global trading volume of these regions. I think most of the folks that are listening to the podcast are familiar with LiveX, which is a, a data source that we use a lot <clears throat> as a reference point for category performance, the performance of the fine wine market as a whole. And so we took a look at the at the trading share of individual regions on the LiveX platform. LiveX has around 500 merchants that trade global globally. So it's a pretty good proxy and representation of the market as a whole. And by looking at these LiveX, at the trading volumes by region, we were able to kind of bucket and group these categories of, of re, or group these regions into categories that we think make sense. So as an example, we've, we've identified um, what we would call a, a, a core category of specific regions, and that's based on trading volume. So when we think about the core regions for wine, Bordeaux and Burgundy are really constituting this, this sort of core bucket. When you look at the LiveX trading volume, those two categories represent somewhere around 60% of all the volume done on the platform. So it is the lion's share of, well, it is a significant share of the fine wine market. And then we think about these other regions that are gaining market share and, and gaining trading volume, but are still a good ways away from those those two core regions, Champagne and Italy are, are the two regions that we think about. And we define those as trending because again, the growth has been significant. One of the reasons is because people are finding that they represent very good, very good quality for price. And so as Bordeaux and Burgundy get more expensive, that is stimulating demand in these other regions where the relative value proposition might be higher. So looking at Champagne in Italy, those represent around 25% of the trading volume on LiveX. And then we've got everything else. So we've got the US, Rhone, all the other regions in the world. We define those as emerging. And again, collectively, that's somewhere around 15, 16% of the trading volume on, on LiveX. There, we see an even greater value proposition from a a quality price ratio, but there's just a much different level of global awareness and global demand. So by bucketing them, we we think we can also sort of orient around, again, these different strategies you might take and, and understanding the different, the potential upside, but also some of the some of the challenges that might come come with that as well. Yeah, we released this article this past week, How Do I Know Which Collections to Buy, where we included a table citing the information that Adam just shared. And, you know, kind of the one of the comments in the article is with, for instance, the USA region that we have noted here as emerging, it takes up 
of the share of trade on LiveX. So kind of the framework that we're working in is intuitively for us, if you know we saw a portfolio that was 90% allocated into wines from the US, whereas only US only makes up 7% of the trade, that would feel just, you know, just trying to be intuitive about the market, that would feel a little bit over allocated into the US. So we hope to try and not carve out categories for investors to, you know, follow strictly and make investing decisions based on the volume data. But I think that provides a really good starting point for thinking about, okay, where's the liquidity at in this market? Where will there be hopefully the most opportunity on the sell side of this asset? And that's why we see, you know, Bordeaux and Burgundy taking up so much of the trade. You know, the wines are moving more quickly. There's higher demand for them. Much, you know, demand puts pressure on the price. With these smaller regions, especially the trending regions, so Italy and Champagne, are are they positioned to continue taking more market share from Bordeaux and Burgundy? Or what, you know, what would it take for something like, a region like Champagne, which currently, you know, in our first half of 2022 data takes up about 11.5% of the trade, what would it take for them to be around the likes of Burgundy at 25%? Is it is it possible based on just the amount of wine that they produce? Or, you know, what's your kind of intuition on how yeah. the emerging and trending regions can take market share? Well, I think one of the interesting things you talked about the U.S. market specifically and and in the the blog post talking about again the the relative size of that sort of that regional trade share in relationship to the US, to the global market and bordeaux as an example i think one of the other things to think about is the that relatively small increases in volume can drive big percentage gains in share and and you can think about that as potentially driving um, outsized price appreciation. So I think that is obvious, but just wanted to kind of restate it. Whereas a category like Bordeaux, you've got a lot of liquidity, a lot of, relatively speaking, a lot of activity. And therefore, you could assume, or you could, yeah, you could assume some maybe greater level of price stability, but much larger moves in volume needing to happen to drive that same percentage increase as it relates to as it relates to champagne catching up to burgundy i think at the you know at the unit level that's difficult because of just some of the the high prices commanded by some of the top burgundy and the very limited production. So I think a lot of that growth in Burgundy, it's it's sort of like what we were just talking about with, with USA. You have this fairly small volume of products and what's really driving that percentage growth is it's not as much a volume activity. It's not trading cases, but it's intense focus on a, on a very scarce product. Whereas Champagne, you've got a much larger category, much more production and so you're actually seeing a much higher sort of percentage increase in consumption and, and activity than you would in Burgundy to drive those price increases. So I don't think it's possible. I, I don't think it's likely for Champagne to ultimately overtake Burgundy. 
but I definitely feel like it's possible and likely that these trends, Champagne and Italy continuing to gain share will continue. Is there anything to say about, for instance, the quality of consecutive vintages in, say, a place like Napa Valley versus Burgundy, where there can be a little bit more, the the variance can be a, a bit higher over time in terms of the quality of the vintages and the climate in those areas. I mean, we find that California is fairly consistent, fairly high quality vintage. I was just trying to, I was checking the Robert Parker vintage charts on on Burgundy because I'm more familiar with Napa Valley. I mean, I know in Napa, we had 2013, 2016, 2018, 2019. These are all, you know, stellar vintages of the last 10 years in Napa. Is there opportunity in that region, regions that maybe have more consistent climates and who also have cult producers to just by nature of continuously churning out, you know, high, highly scored wines and highly scored vintages, that that would play a factor? Or is it really, you know, there's just not enough volume coming out of the region, fine wine coming out of that region? Well, I think what we have two, if we think about Burgundy and Napa, two very interesting and different dynamics in terms of how the wines are marketed and sold. And what's interesting, I think one of the other things that's sort of driving increases in Burgundy is producers becoming more savvy around the secondary market demand for their wines. So a lot of these producers are very small and are really relying on trade partners to distribute and market those wines. So I think there was a disconnect between the what the domains were releasing these wines for and the almost instantaneous secondary market prices that those wines would command. I think the producers are becoming more smarter around that creating a pricing strategy, a coherent pricing strategy, and capturing more value. In Napa, a lot of that, the top producers, their main focus is direct to consumer. So they are very attuned to the market in general and and really dictating the pricing strategy. So I think the producers in Napa have been capturing more value historically than a producer in Burgundy would, but definitely production will have an impact. I think, yeah, I think in Napa, most producers are just sort of in the habit of pretty regularly taking price increases. But one interesting dynamic here is the fact that a lot of producers are are skipping vintages entirely because of challenges around fires and and harvest quality. So even though they're fairly consistent, these sort of black swan events that are becoming more and more common are really creating a a potential catalyst for price appreciation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and these Napa wines, I guess, also are, I would have to assume being on average drunk earlier than the Burgundy counterparts, right? And, you know, there are different varietals too. We're talking about Pinot Noir versus, you know, really warm climate Cabernet. So, yeah. Yeah. I guess there, there are likely more factors there. And, you know, I've also wanted to, one of the other points of data that I'm hoping to dive into. I don't know if you have any sense of this off the top of your head, but the share of regional trade by producer 
I would imagine that Screaming Eagle, Harlan, and Opus basically carry all of Napa Valley versus, you know, DRC is is massive and important, but does it carry the region the same way that those producers in California do? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that, but I think that's an interesting thing that we might be able to dig into. Yeah, well, we can definitely, we could definitely do some analysis on the LiveX indices for those regions as an example, fairly quick and dirty. Now, I think LiveX, the the net, the USA index is only 50 wines, I think. So it's probably already concentrated to that, to that upper tier of producers. But the Burgundy, Burgundy is 150. We could look at that and, and understand the DRC share of, you know, of that index. Although I will say again, the selection process, there's, there's some, there's some methodology behind it, but it also is a committee or a group of people deciding which wines actually go in there. So it's not fully representative of the, of the, you know, the entire region and, and and the regional share of one producer versus the rest. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, all of these considerations are helpful when putting into context, you know, how to think about this asset class and, you know, we're not in the business of telling investors how to invest, but we do want to provide the most amount of clear and applicable education that's relevant to the collections that we launch, right? There are plenty of things that you can know about the wine market, the way the wine markets move and such that just don't apply to the collections that we're offering on Vint. And so we want to be experts, yes, in the wine market, but experts on our theses for our collections. We want our investors to be also. So would always love feedback from users, investors, investors, listeners on our collection theses. We, you know, I think we've talked about some of the updates we've made to our platform to make accessing some of that information a little easier, but always happy to take requests on, you know, what data might be more helpful for you as you make decisions around your investments. You know, we want to be cognizant both of what we think is important in the market and what we think is important to share, but also what investors are looking for. So, yeah, I think, you know, as we continue to be positioned as experts in this space and people increase their allocations, we want to be seen as accessible both in the types of collections that we offer, but also in the education we provide around those collections. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that rings rings true. And and I think there are, yeah, the idea is thinking about a strategy that it that or that that investors can determine a strategy and craft a strategy that is more granular than just buying and holding every collection we have or yeah. a specific right. subset that there is there are ways to think about this and these are things that we are continuing to focus on internally and both as we're identifying and crafting collections but also how we're communicating about them to just bring some of this to the surface for our our community. Yeah, and if a listener out there has been investing on the platform with a particular strategy in mind, you know, I've talked to some folks who have very clear strategies of how they're allocating funds to Vent, which is always interesting to hear. We'd love to hear from you. And also happy to just help you plan and execute that strategy as well. You know, like I said, we 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 don't provide investment strategies or investment advice, but we can certainly help to execute a strategy that you have and and help you think maybe more clearly about that as our offerings come to the table. So yeah, reach out to us. Happy to answer any questions about our collections. Obviously, Adam is a great resource for answering those wine-related questions as well. 
but also, you know, is is right there in the weeds in terms of managing our acquisition and our sale and is monitoring the markets every day. So thanks, Adam, for coming on and joining today. I'm not sure if I think we'll probably have you next week as well, as Billy's out for a little bit. Um, so when, when we record next week, we'll probably get a little double dip of co-host Adam. I love it. I love it. Enjoying our quality time together, Brady. <laughs> All right. And enjoy your day, guys. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vent podcast, please email us at support at vent.co. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vent platform, find us at www.vent.co. That's www.vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular as amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vent platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal tax or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering. 